else could this be but Igor Stravinsky? It's his symphony in three movements. Typically punchy, percussive, with that wonderfully incisive orchestration and with a terrific rhythmic drive. Thanks to the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, conductor Alexander Shelley, for that magnificently spirited rendition of the opening of the symphony in three movements. Well, if that sounds like absolutely typical Stravinsky to you, it's really more typical of the Stravinsky of a certain period in his life, and particularly around what's probably still his most famous work, his revolutionary ballet, The Rite of Spring. But The Rite of Spring was written in 1911-13, to 13, before the First World War. The Symphony in Three Movements was written in 1942-45, to 45, at the height of World War II, when Stravinsky was in his second period of exile in the United States, and he was on the edge of another big change in style, when he was going to move very, very far away from that kind of dissonant, abrasive, rhythmic style we've just heard. So perhaps this return to the convulsive violence of the Rite of Spring is a reflection, possibly, of how Stravinsky felt at the time, or how he was thinking at the time he wrote the Symphony in Three Movements. Well, Stravinsky hated speculation like that. Any attempt to explain what his music was about in anything other than notes really infuriated him. He hated kind of program notes that described this as sad music or this as happy music. It was the kind of thing that really made his blood vaporize. And one of his most famous comments on this, as I'm sure some of you will know, is music of itself can express absolutely nothing. But that actually is less, well, I should not want to say less controversial. In a way, it says less than it seems to say because you could say that language of itself can express absolutely nothing. What language needs is a hearer with the right kind of brain, with the right kind of conditioning to make sense about it, somebody who's already, as it were, programmed to understand that language, and it's actually very much the same with music. But Stravinsky was unusually specific about the symphony in three movements. Instead of making his usual self-distancing remark, he rather dropped his guard here. This is what he says. The symphony does and does not express my feelings about world events, says Stravinsky, and he puts that expressed by feelings very explicitly in quotation marks. But I prefer to say only that without participation of what I think of as my will, they excited my musical imagination. And he goes on to say that the ideas that stimulated his imagination were not ideological or general, but quite specific. Each episode of the Symphony in Three Movements is linked in my imagination with a concrete impression, very often cinematic in origin, of the war. 
So let's have a look at some of the kind of connections that Stravinsky identifies in the symphony in three movements. In fact, of the finale, the finale is the best place to start here because Stravinsky says that this contains what he calls a war plot. The beginning of the movement is particularly appropriate here because Stravinsky says this was a deliberate musical reaction to the experience he'd seen of newsreels on the American cinema at the time in the middle of the Second World War of goose-stepping Nazi soldiers. And he says, the square march beat, the brass band instrumentation, the grotesque crescendo on the tuba, these are all related in my mind to those repellent pictures. <laughs> Well, when you hear that music after Stravinsky's words, it is actually rather easy to fit that music to images of kind of newsreel of goose-stapping Nazis and imagine Stravinsky having fun making them march backwards and forwards, distorting their movements on his own musical screen in his mind. But what about the idea of a war plot? I mean, this does sound extremely specific, Stravinsky. It sounds much more like the sort of thing his fellow Russian Shostakovich might have said about one of his wartime symphonies, like the Leningrad Symphony. But Stravinsky actually homes in on a particular passage in the finale of the Symphony in Three Movements to illustrate his point. The march music, he says, dominates this movement until we get to the fugue. And here, he says it's both a stasis and a turning point. And quite specifically, he says, the immobility at the beginning of the fugue is comic, I think, and so it, to me, was the overturned arrogance of the Germans when their war machine failed. Well, I must say, I was delighted to discover that Stravinsky thought this music was intended to be comic because I must say the first time I heard it, I thought it was too. It starts with a fugal theme, but it starts rather limply on a solo trombone and then rather feebly with the piano picking out the odd note here and there, like a non-musician trying to pick out a tune with one finger on the keyboard. At first, it seems that you actually get just two notes, as though this theme is kind of stuck on two notes going backwards and forwards. And you even find the trombone and the piano get tangled up at one point, as though they're trying to hit the same note and not quite succeeding. So it, well, let's hear the beginning with just the trombone and the piano. Yes, there's definitely an element of comedy there, and perhaps just a slightly sinister tone to it too, although I must say I wouldn't have thought of, as it were, overturned Nazi arrogance immediately on hearing that for the first time. But Stravinsky is even more revealing when it comes to the end of the finale, extraordinary, exciting end this symphony has. He says that the fugue and the end of the symphony, particularly the crescendo, are associated in his mind in his plot, 
with the rise of the Allies, and this is the quotation, and perhaps the final, albeit rather too commercial, D-flat sixth chord, instead of the expected C major, tokens my heightened exuberance at the Allied triumph at the end of the war. Well, let's try a kind of experiment, because Stravinsky says there that the final chord of the symphony is not the expected one. He says we're expecting a chord of C, instead of which we get a chord of D-flat. So let's have the end of the symphony with a chord of C, which, according to Stravinsky, is the right chord. It's the chord we should be expecting. And I wonder what you'll think of that. But anyway, here is the end of the symphony with Stravinsky's, as it were, right chord. I saw one or two smiles in the audience of that final chord, I think possibly from people who know this symphony and weren't expecting that final chord. So let's hear what Stravinsky actually wrote, that final, albeit rather too commercial, D-flat sixth chord. I don't know about you, but that sounds right to me. But that's very typical of Stravinsky, as it were, catching himself with his guard down making a comment like that. Because Stravinsky, I sometimes think it might have been quite difficult being Stravinsky, because here he was with this reputation as being this severe intellectual modernist. And from time to time, he does drop his guard and let himself show a little bit more of his feelings than he intended. And you can see him backing off and making comments like that, rather too commercial. But, as Stravinsky says at the end of his little passage where he's told us all these extraordinary things about the origins of the finale, enough of this. In spite of what I've said, the symphony is not programmatic. Composers combine notes. That's all. Well, Stravinsky could have a point, because if composers do rely very much on unconscious creative processes, is the artist necessarily the best person to tell you what those processes are? Is he always the person who's most clearly aware in his conscious mind of what's going on when he puts a work of art together? After all, what, what does music like this have to do with war plots? This is part of the slow movement. Does anything sound less like music for a cinematic newsreel of World War II than this kind of thing?
You might possibly describe that music as plaintive, maybe. I'm not sure Stravinsky would have liked that kind of description, but it's possible. But on the whole, it seems to have a kind of perfumed delicacy, especially that low flute writing at the beginning. And it turns out that this music did have an origin in film music, a kind of film project that came to nothing. Cinematic, certainly, but nothing to do on the face of it, it seems, with the war. That music was connected with an apparition of the Virgin scene in a film version of Franz Werfel's novel, The Song of Bernadette, a poetic novel that he was writing, all about Lourdes and the experience of Saint Bernadette when she had her vision of the Blessed Virgin in the grotto at Lourdes. And a lot of people have said, well, there you are. There's part of this symphony which has, clearly has nothing to do with World War II. It has a completely different point of origin. But there could be a connection after all, because Franz Werfel, who wrote the Song of Bernadette, was, like Stravinsky, a wartime exile. Uh, Werfel fled from Germany because he felt that he, he couldn't stay there under Nazi rule. And he also went to the USA and got to know Stravinsky in America. And on his way out of Germany in 1940, uh, Werfel went through France and was able to pay a visit to Lourdes, and he was himself a religious man. And he made a vow, apparently, to St. Bernadette at Lourdes, the result of which was that if he got out of Nazi-occupied France alive, he would write a work in honor of St. Bernadette and of the Virgin as a result. And the consequence was the Song of, of Bernadette. And it seems that this also appealed to Stravinsky, who, like Werfel, was a very religious man, especially in his later years. So there may have been something about Werfel's wartime vow, consecrating himself to a religious purpose in a place of sanctity in the midst of terrible suffering. Maybe that did appeal to Stravinsky, and maybe it did combine in his mind with the idea of what he called the war plot in the finale. But this whole business about how composers combine notes, you always have to bear that in mind with Stravinsky in case there's any temptation to go too far along this kind of speculation as to the causes of musical ideas. Because Stravinsky is such an ingenious and fascinating note combiner. For instance, that final chord of D-flat that we heard a little earlier, that is not quite unprepared in the symphony. In fact, at the very beginning of the symphony, in the opening gesture, you can see Stravinsky sowing the musical seeds that prepare for that final chord of D-flat. Here is the very opening of the symphony. That's definitely a gesture there with a characteristic sweeping upward flourish, and then that very characteristic motive at the end of it. Now, maybe I could ask our pianist, Linda Cochran here, if you wouldn't mind just playing the first three notes, the opening sweep and then the G that follows it, so we can hear just, just the beginning of that gesture. Now, that sounds like a dominant of the key of C minor. In fact, you could resolve it very simply, very directly, in C minor like this. banal, but you certainly couldn't say it was unexpected. But actually what Stravinsky follows it with is not a chord of C minor, but the next semitone up, D flat, the very chord on which the symphony is to end, like this. So D flat chord at the end there, prepared right in the opening bars of the symphony. There's something else that's interesting about what follows and this whole business of combining notes, because Stravinsky 
was very much a composer who created his music at the keyboard. In fact, he insisted that he couldn't write apart from the piano. It wasn't that he wasn't capable of imagining the sounds away from the piano in his own head. He felt he needed to be, as he put it, literally in touch with the sounds at the keyboard to make sense of what he was composing. And in fact, even when he's writing for the orchestra, if you start to play it at the piano, it's staggering how well the writing fits underneath your fingers. It's as though the ideas came to him in pianistic terms before he translates them into the orchestra. In fact, I read the other day that Stravinsky was very surprised indeed when he saw the composer Paul Hindemith waiting for a train that was two hours late at a Berlin station, making use of his time in the waiting room by writing music straight onto the paper. Stravinsky said, how can you do that without the sounds? He needs to have the sounds in front of him. And sometimes when you play Stravinsky's music on the piano, I recently was accompanying my wife as she was learning one of the choral parts in the Symphony of Psalms, you actually begin to notice the way Stravinsky's hand moves. There are particular kinds of movement that obviously suited him physically. And that however intelligent he is musically, he thinks through his fingers. And that sense of being in touch with the sounds is very crucial to him. And you can hear it in the orchestral writing, I think, that follows that beginning. You can imagine Stravinsky playing around with that semitonal clash between D-flat and G on the piano and, and seeing how many chords he can come out with producing this kind of clash. At the same time, if you listen to the way the trombones punch out the beginning of each chord, that's almost an orchestral equivalent of the hammer hitting the string before you get the reverberation that follows. <laughs> And there at the end, that interestingly wrong-sounding note in the bassoon at the bottom is a C-sharp or indeed a D-flat. It's again as though Stravinsky has come up. You can hear the figure in the right hand in the clarinets. Ta -ta 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 -ta. And with his left hand, he's saying, what happens if I put a C-sharp against that? Bong. And the result is the kind of semitonal clash that he enjoys creating. You can also hear Stravinsky playing around with those opening chords at the end of the movement. And there's some particularly wonderful Stravinsky wind scoring here. It sounds so physical, the way Stravinsky writes for the orchestra. It's almost as though he's creating sound sculptures. Stravinsky's chords, I sometimes feel listening to them, they're so real, they're so physical, you could almost touch them like a piece of quartz or the grains of stones. They're almost, they have that kind of physical quality. And you can certainly hear in these chords at the end of the first movement, Stravinsky enjoying picking them out on the piano and just relishing each chord's sound for its own sake as he strikes it.
I love the way the music melts into that C major chord at the end, that slightly enriched C major chord. But the effect when the winds stop and you're just left with the strings is almost like what they call a half-pedaling effect on the piano, where you take your foot off just for a second and then put it back on again, and you get some of the, the resonances left, but not all of it. It's a very pianistic effect, again, translated brilliantly into the orchestra. But you could hear that upward flourish right from the beginning of the symphony, again in that passage, repeating as though it had kind of got stuck in a groove. It seems that even here at the end of the movement, that idea is fertile too. And in this very exciting passage, near the beginning of the first movement, you can hear that upward sweeping scale in sort of slow motion. You'll hear it at one point very fast on the high strings of woodwind. But if you listen to the lower rising scales in the bass instruments, you'll hear that they too derive from that rising scale right at the beginning of the symphony. And then how Stravinsky turns them back to front so that they fall again. All of this is marvelously inventive use of that idea from right from the beginning of the symphony. <laughs> So even that seemingly theatrical gesture, which we heard at the beginning of the symphony, turns out to have seminal importance. It's a musical seed that produces other ideas later in the symphony. Here's an example from near the beginning of the finale. After those goose-stepping Nazis in the march music that we hear at the beginning of the finale, you'll hear whoops on the horn and piano, very very arresting sound that really jumps out of the orchestral texture. These two derive clearly from that at the beginning of the symphony. It's another example of Stravinsky turning this idea to completely new use in a new context. thrilling effect, actually, even if you're sitting in the audience and sitting up here on the stage with the horns right behind me, I can tell you it's absolutely marvelous. It does make a very strong contrast with the music we heard in that one extract that we've heard so far from the second movement, the movement that was associated with Franz Werfel's Song of Bernadette and the cinematic music that Stravinsky started to write, but which apparently came to nothing. This is a very different kind of sound world. For one thing, there's an important, significant change in the orchestral lineup, as you'll notice here. There's also something of the delicacy of parts of the early ballet, The Firebird, or of the opera, The Nightingale. This is, this is a different kind of sound scenery that we're hearing here.
You'll notice that the piano that plays such an important part in the first movement and in the finale has gone from this movement. And in its place, a rather more delicate presence, a rather more subtle presence, is the harp, a solo harp, which today is played for us by Pippa Tonell. Now, the interesting thing about the symphony, one of the many interesting things about the symphony in three movements, and uh, this is one of the features that's made some people question whether it ought to be called a symphony at all, are these prominent solo roles in all three movements. First of all, for the piano in the first movement, then the harp in the second, then both instruments in the finale. Some people have said that it's more of what you might call a symphony concerto than a real symphony. And it seems that Stravinsky, at one point, perhaps early on, did think of writing it more in the nature of a kind of concertante work, a concerto-like work, a symphony concerto, rather than actual symphony, as he called it. But Stravinsky always had an interesting take on that word, symphony, because none of the works he gave this title to, apart from one very youthful piece, are symphonies in the conventional sense at all. There's uh, the Symphony of Psalms, which is really a kind of neo-Byzantine choral meditation, a religious work, in which feels almost feels out of place in the concert hall. Even the Symphony in C seems like a kind of ironic invocation of the classical masters rather than a work composed squarely in a tradition. And as for the piece he called Symphonies of Wind Instruments, well, I think the fact that he gave it the plural and called it Symphonies is revealing enough in itself it certainly doesn't sound anything like a symphony by Beethoven or Tchaikovsky or Bruckner or Brahms. But in this symphony, the role of the two solo instruments, the harp and the piano, varies. It changes from time to time. Sometimes, for instance, in the first movement, the piano is very much part of the orchestral texture, as in that opening flourish that we heard. But sometimes it stands out as though to one side, as in this extremely exciting passage from near the start of the symphony. Now, Stravinsky's use of rhythm is always very viscerally exciting. It's very compelling. If you, if you like, try counting along with this passage in your head and see if you can keep pace with where the beat is. It's easier, perhaps, if you watch the conductor. I'll tell you that it's mostly in 4-4, but every now and again with an odd 3-4 bar. But it sounds and feels much more complicated than that. At the same time, concentrate on what the piano is doing. Is the piano part of the orchestra or not? By the end of that passage, the piano has definitely retreated back into the orchestra and become just another member of the orchestra. But at the beginning, there's just enough about its sound standing to one side that reminds us of piano concertos, the piano as soloist, the piano against the orchestra. And this is very typical of Stravinsky's kind of ironic thinking. On the one level, he's very physically engaging, very physically involving in those exciting rhythms and the way they build up. At the same time, he makes us think about the materials he's using. Is the piano a soloist? Is it a member of the orchestra? Is it a continuing instrument or what? There's another passage similar later in the first movement. It could have come from a piano concerto, or perhaps it's more like chamber music, where the piano is in a more intimate relationship with solo instruments. It's very interesting listening to this passage. What exactly is the relationship between the piano 
and the other members of the orchestra. It's quite similar in parts of the slow movement as well, where the relationship between the harp and the rest of the orchestra seems to be going through a kind of fluid state. Uh, sometimes it sounds like an instrument in a chamber ensemble. Sometimes it, the harp could be playing a role more like the continuo, holding the ensemble together in a piece of Baroque music, filling in the harmony, binding the ensemble together. All these are possible, but it certainly adds a very distinctive color to the rest of the orchestra, and in some ways it stands sometimes to one side, as though it isn't quite a member of the orchestra along with the conventional instruments. Just at the end there, the last thing we heard on this harp was a quick rising scale, which is another echo of that flourish right from the start of the symphony. There are relationships going on on all sorts of levels in this work. So it's clearly a very complicated work, a very complex work operating on many different levels at the same time. So one can understand why Stravinsky might have been reluctant to have it reduced to a level of expressing feelings or containing a program about World War II or whatever. But Stravinsky did say there was a possible link between the concerto-like roles of the harp and the piano and what he insisted on calling his war plot. Uh, 
Because these two solo instruments, or quasi-solo instruments, only play together in the third movement, and they only play alone together at one point, at the beginning of that fugue, which Stravinsky said was comic and static, and suggested to him the overturned arrogance of the Nazi war machine. But at the same time, it is, it's a wonderful sound in its own right, this combination of piano and harp. It's a beautiful and extraordinary sound, and I can't think of any example in music before this symphony of the piano and the harp being used so strikingly alone together like this. So do we really need a meaning and interpretation here, or can we just appreciate it as a particularly beautiful sound as a result of Stravinsky's combining notes? It's a fascinating sound, isn't it? The piano and the harp both resonate, but in completely different ways. So there's a very different sort of aura around those two instruments combining there. It's fascinating to see how many composers, obviously, were inspired by and influenced by that one little passage or that combination in this work. We were just talking about this before the program, and uh, there's a huge section of Sir Michael Tippett's second symphony, in his third movement of his second symphony, where just the piano and the harp play together. And it's hard to imagine that he would have written it without having heard this passage in the symphony in three movements and being struck by it. It's the same with the combinations of harp and piano in Benjamin Britten's last opera, Death in Venice. Again, he must have had the Stravinsky at the back of his mind. Both those composers were strongly influenced by Stravinsky. Well, after I've shown all these different threads or given a clue as to threads that you can pick up and look at and pick for yourselves in this symphony, we'll hear the complete symphony in three movements in a moment or two. But before we do so, has anybody got any question they'd like to make or any comment they'd like to make on, on what they've heard? Somebody's... Yes, thank you. Um, Bach was a, a, a person who tried to convey a message, a very textual person. Stravinsky seems to be trying to get away from that. He seems to be a very synesthetic uh, composer. He felt the music when he was composing it, and he wants you to feel the, the, the music when you're hearing it. Maybe that's why he didn't want to speak about what he was doing. Stravinsky's comments about what he wanted us to hear or didn't want us to hear when he wrote his, his music are, are fascinatingly variable because he seems to constantly be changing his position or shifting his position. I mean, th there is one thing that I've got on my desk at home, which is very good for anyone who talks about music to remember. It's a quotation from the music-obsessed German philosopher Ernst Bloch, who said, remember what, when you listen to music, what you're really listening to is yourself. And I think it's a very important thing for anyone who talks about music to remind themselves. But Stravinsky, the, his comments about the symphony in three movements are particularly interesting because it seems that on the one hand he's saying, no, no, all I'm doing is just combining notes. I don't expect you to, to listen to this music in any other way than just as a purely oral experience. Make sense of it the way you want. Yet at the same time, it seems he really does want us to know about these ideas of the origins of the sound in the Second World War. One that, that fascinates with me with Stravinsky is that he's a composer who wears masks we were talking about how, in a way, the piano and the harp play. They, they wear different masks during this piece, almost like him himself. Sometimes the piano is a soloist. Sometimes it's a, an instrument, as it were, at one side, almost like a commentary on the orchestral action. Sometimes it's just part of the orchestral fabric. 
But Stravinsky himself was a great wearer of masks. One thing that he loved doing was writing in the styles of and at the same time mocking the styles of other composers. He did this brilliantly with Pergolesi and his ballet Pulcinella. And he did it even more explicitly in his ballet The Fairy's Kiss, which was inspired by Tchaikovsky. Isn't it fascinating to find Stravinsky who says that music of itself can express nothing and he's an absolute horror of the idea of interpretation and a performer should just play the notes as written and not try to make any kind of emotional nonsense out of them and admitting that Tchaikovsky is one of his favorite composers. And right at the climax of the Ballet of the Fairies Kiss, Stravinsky quotes a song of Tchaikovsky's, a very famous song called None But the Lonely Heart. And this is the one moment of Stravinsky's music where suddenly it seems that Stravinsky's heart itself does seem to be worn on the sleeves. It's a startlingly emotional passage. And if you think of Stravinsky's own position as an exile, uh, his first period of exile when he wrote The Fairy's Kiss, then it may have been his own identification with Tchaikovsky because when he wrote about what he felt about Tchaikovsky's music, suddenly these intensely nostalgic thoughts about the Russia he knew as a boy come back. And uh, I find it fascinating listening to Stravinsky's music it, 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 that so often it seems to invite you to respond to it emotionally. At the same time, it says, no, 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 no I'm not doing that. I'll, I'll put myself at one distance from that. And the ironic element comes into play again. You can certainly feel that at work in this symphony. At the same time, it is so physically powerful and compelling and exciting in its own way. I'm sure that Stravinsky does want us at least to go some way down the road towards interpreting what he's had. I think we've time for one more question. Uh, lady at the front here. As he was writing this in America at the time, do you think he was influenced at all by American music? Oh, that's a very interesting question, um, which I'd like to know more about <laughs> myself. <laughs> because a lot of the composers who went to America, even such an unlikely assortment as Rachmaninoff or the Czech composer Martinu or Stravinsky himself, the sound of their orchestral writing definitely changed, and particularly their orchestral writing uh, when they got to America. And that may have been partly because American orchestras do go for this very marvelous, bright, upfront sound, and particularly the brass. And this is a very brass-heavy piece. There's a lot of exciting writing for the brass. Also, if you listen to American recordings, the CBS and Sony then our Sony recordings from that period, they often have a particularly bright bias towards the treble sound, as though American producers were very keen to emphasize that kind of sound. And you'll notice that, for instance, Rachmaninoff's Third Symphony or Martinu's symphonies after he went to America or Stravinsky's Symphony in Three Movements, there's definitely a, a new inclination towards this bright brass sound. And that final chord, the right chord, the D-flat major chord that Stravinsky sort of backs off and says perhaps a bit too commercial, that's definitely an American chord, isn't it? I mean, it sounds almost like the end of a Gershwin piece, doesn't it? So I'm, I'm certain that that was the case. And one thing, of course, that was crucial for Stravinsky was jazz. Uh, he loved jazz, and he loved it from his earlier days, but going to America and meeting the great jazz musicians, meeting people like Duke Ellington and Benny Goodman, for whom he wrote the Ebony Concerto, was very important for him too. So yes, obviously, I mean, music was, American music was all around him. I think it's pretty clear when we hear this symphony, he absorbed a lot of it. That rhythm in the finale that you hear, dum, dum, da, dum, he says was a rumba sound, definitely a rumba rhythm. Well, he would have got that rhythm via America, wouldn't he? He certainly wouldn't have got it from his days in France, in his exile in France, and certainly it's not a Russian rhythm. I think it's time now, isn't it, that we heard the complete symphony in three movements. So now here is the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, leader Elizabeth Layton, conducted by Alexander Shelley in Stravinsky's Symphony in Three Movements. <laughs> 